preachers who preach through the Sermon on the Mount love to reference a story <clears throat> about a professor at Texas A&M uh, who about 30 years ago directed her students to read the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, uh, Virginia Stem Owens was her name. And she, she knew she was working in a very conservative kind of upper middle class context. And so she assumed that people would have been familiar with it, but none of her students had ever read the thing. Well, after they did, she had them write essays on their impressions of the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to some of the samples here. One student wrote, you know, there's an old saying that you shouldn't believe everything you read, and it certainly applies in this case. Another said, it's kind of hard to believe anything that was written down that many years ago. Still another said, I don't like the Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read, and it made me feel like I had to be perfect, and nobody is. The fourth one was the most explicit. <laughs> he said, the things asked for in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman is adultery? That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have ever heard. Well, Owens goes on to sort of decry the, the sort of loss of biblical literacy in our day, and, and, and with, which, of course, was that upcoming generation, which is now the generation in charge of pop culture in our day, when she says this. She says, as Western civilization expends what little biblical capital it has left, we may find ourselves being impoverished, not in just the postmodern age, but in a new barbarism, a sort of fluorescent dark age, like the inside of a mall. Remember malls, what those used to be? Now, realize, I realize that's actually, she's probably got some truth in what she's saying, but I actually am encouraged by what those students said. I think there's a different take on this because in many ways, their reaction to the Sermon on the Mount was a little more honest oftentimes than you and I are. Because I've tried to appeal to you that if you really take the Sermon on the Mount seriously, you're going to find yourself falling way short of what it demands and um, so that revulsion is probably appropriate when you look at the Sermon on the Mount for what it really says. You start to get these signs in verse 20 that we didn't read this morning. But when Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you don't know, the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day represented to the common folk like the pinnacle of religiosity. Nobody was more devout, was more committed, was more sort of specific religious observers than the scribes and the Pharisees. So Jesus looks and says, access into my kingdom is not going to happen unless your righteousness exceeds theirs. It makes me wonder if there weren't like some snickers or gasps going through the crowd that were like, what are you crazy? Who's more religious and better Christians than the Pharisees? But, of course, Jesus is saying in, in the immediate context something that's very profound because he's saying, look, truth in your life has got to be more than just external. It cannot just be a show. Because the Pharisees were known, of course, for being very righteous people, but they also were the people that really wanted you to know that they were being righteous people. It was for appearances. Jesus kind of smacks it right in the mouth in Matthew 23 when he captures the way the Pharisees processed it. In verse 25, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I am after the whole person, not just the externals of your life. It's, it's not just your compliance that I want. 
I want to get down into your motivations, into your heart, into your imagination, the way you see everything. And so for the rest of the sermon, Jesus is contrasting an external obedience with a true inward holiness. Over and over again, he's going to say, you have heard it said, but I tell you. And what he's doing is providing his followers with this this map of the internal motivation of the Christian life and how genuine transformation and healing really happens. And the very first topic he goes after is without question the number one source of strife and destruction, and it's anger. In other words, if you are wanting to know anything about the good life, you have got to deal with that boiling resentment inside of you. It starts right there in our anger with each other. And so I want to unlock three points this morning from this passage. I want to see what we can learn about righteous anger, about unrighteous anger, and then finally about taming our anger. Let's look at that first one, how we can define righteous anger. We can make this point rather quickly. Because in verse 22, Jesus says, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, stop there. We know that Jesus cannot mean that anger at any opportunity is wrong. Why? Because Jesus got angry a lot in the New Testament. Just a handful of examples. You know, John chapter 2, remember when he's in the temple with the money changers? He's clearly very angry there. Mark chapter 3, Jesus is having an argument with the religious leaders over how to follow the Sabbath correctly, and he gets angry. Lots of people don't realize that when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11, in verse 33, it says that he was angry at the crowds for their mourning. And then finally, you get the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, who even goes so far as to say that God in heaven is angry against the ungodliness and unrighteous of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. All this gets summed up into a nice, tidy little uh, 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 saying that the Apostle Paul gave in Ephesians 4.26 when he said this, Be angry, but do not sin. That verb there, be angry, by the way, is in the imperative tense, which means it's a command. Paul is commanding us and saying there are times in which it is appropriate to be angry. Of course, I realize that's off-putting to a lot of people. Some of us may have grown up in homes where anger was flashing at a moment. We got ugly examples of, of wanton, angry outbursts from parents. And it seems a little gross to sort of have an image of God being angry in the Bible. But here's my premise this morning. You cannot de-angry God. Because if you do, you not only rob him of something intrinsic to his character, but you also begin to take something away that's essential to your character. What do I mean by that? Well, when it comes to the Bible's anger, the times in which you see the Old Testament being the most angry and reflecting on God's anger, it's when there is oppression and injustice in society. That's the biggest example that you get. It is proper to be angry at that. Christian writer Becky Pippert says this, How can a good God forgive bad people without compromising himself? Does he just play fast and loose with the facts? Oh, never mind. Boys will be boys. Try telling that, though, to the survivor of the Cambodian killing fields. Or try telling that to someone who lost their entire family in the Holocaust. No. To be truly good, one has to be outraged by evil and implacably hostile to injustice. Wow. Okay, go to the next step. 
We know that if we're going to be godly people, that we need to be imitators of God, as Paul will tell us. If he is outraged by the evil that he sees around us, it's appropriate for us to be as well. Look, the more that a parent loves their child, the more angry it's going to be at any forces inside that child that would threaten to destroy it or or dehumanize it. So therefore, we call something righteous anger whenever it is a move towards dealing with any threat to take something that was lovely and right and make it ugly and wrong. That's righteous anger. It's appropriate for us to be angry in that spot. Now look, before you get all excited about it, though, be careful. Exodus 34, Jesus, God is revealing himself to Moses. And in the midst of his self-description, he mentions that he is slow to anger. It actually came up a lot of times in our liturgy this morning. In other words, God's anger is slow in coming, which makes a great little uh, metric for us, doesn't it? Are you quick to anger or slow to anger? I think, honestly, if I'm quick to anger, it's probably something that's not righteous because it comes in a flash without thought. But if there's been a slow boil over time, it's likely that there's something that needs to be paid attention to and that necessarily God is not displeased by it, at least me paying attention to it, which has huge implications for us. Because what it means this is if I am angry at something without cause, that's a sin. But if I am not angry at something that God is angry at, that's also a sin. And I realize that for a lot of us, this is is about to make us uncomfortable. But no Christian can do what, and let's be honest with ourselves, what Christians are oftentimes want to do, especially those who live in the state of privilege, as most of us in this room do. That when we sort of see injustices going on around us, and we hear both from our African-American, or even now after this week, our Asian-American brothers and sisters in Christ, as they rise up and say, we think that there's injustice here. Now I can come alongside and hopefully listen to them long enough to discern exactly where that might be. But I cannot, under any circumstance, be dismissive of it without realizing that God cares about it. And if he is angry about it, I have to be angry about it. Look, this can include everything from listening to the cries of justice and the voices of my neighbor to refusing to discipline my child because I want them to like me too much. It's the same root. But again, I've talked to so many people who, who are almost, almost afraid of anger. And when we are afraid of it, we short-circus a process of healing that God wants to be, do in us by getting our attention with our anger. What he wants us to do is not to avoid it, but to get at the root of our righteous and unrighteous anger and pay enough attention to it. Okay, so that's that's the idea of righteous anger. Secondly, though, Jesus is specifically referring to, in this passage, with unrighteous anger. Look what he says, verse 22. He says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, some of your translations of the Bible there say that you're not supposed to call someone raka, That's a literal translation of that Greek word, which means uh, you empty head. (laughs) Uh, The other word, you fool, is a translation of the Greek word moros, from which we get the word moron, which in those circumstances was basically someone who was willfully wrong. They were denying truth that is literally right in front of their face. So Jesus is saying, look, whether you think someone is just being stupid or what you think they're doing is purposely evil and awful, 
Jesus says, both of them will put you on a path to judgment and hell by watching what comes out of your mouth when you hear them. Now look, I remember reading that as a child and thinking to myself, okay, Jesus, like put the gun down. That's, a, that's awfully jacked up about these sort of words that I throw around. I mean, it just slipped out, Jesus. It wasn't that big a deal, right? No, but Jesus is unpacking for us this, this structure of our unrighteous anger. And I think what he's saying is, is there are two ways that our name-calling reveals in us a problem with our anger. There's two kinds. On the one hand, there's misdirected anger, and on the other, there is unmeasured anger. Let me take both of those. First of all, there is misdirected anger. Oftentimes, anger comes out of me as a result of my own idolatries. We've understood that idolatry is this function of our heart, our motivational center, this, this, this loving machine that locks itself on whatever I believe is going to carry out my plans in life. Oh, and by the way, keep me in control. It gets locked on our own dream. Now, we know the Bible says that the sinful heart is ultimately only locked onto itself. I make myself my only God. And what happens is, is when I don't get my way... <laughs> I get angry. But again, and of course, I'm not angry at the sin. I'm angry at the sinner as well. It's funny. I was in, before this job, I was in campus ministry for quite some time. And I used to see this all the time in watching breakups happen. <clears throat> Bear with me. What, what oftentimes would happen is, let's say the girl got tired of the guy's constant insecurity and uh, manipulation. And so she gets her courage up and she breaks up with the guy. And invariably, the first reaction from that guy was always anger. And I was always so curious about that because I thought, well, you know, up until this time before she broke up with you, you were, you were pledging your great love for her, which presumably is a love that would be wanting their goodwill over and against yours, right? <laughs> so why anger? Unless what was really going on in that moment was an unrighteous anger that's simply showing that that's nothing more than a discharge of my idolatry failing to bless me. It's misdirected anger, Jesus is saying. Take another one. The last time you blew up at your child, let's be honest, was it because you were hating the evil that's inside them or was it because they embarrassed you in public? Or, or take this one. Maybe if you you're sort of found yourself angry at your high schooler, is it because, you know, maybe you were so enmeshed in their lives that you have suddenly begun to not be able to distinguish between their failure and your failure? That's called enmeshment. Hey, by the way, your teenager knows that when you shout at them in that kind of anger, you're not shouting at them. You're shouting at yourself. They see that motivation. It's unrighteous anger because it's nothing more than idolatry. It's misdirected uh, longings that every heart wrestles with. The second kind of unrighteous anger, though, is unmeasured anger. And this is a way of saying that anger oftentimes feels like it's inevitable. You know what I'm saying? It just kind of takes you over and you just couldn't stop it. I've heard people describe anger as if it's like water. You know, if I've got this anger inside of me, if I could just get it out, I can be done with it. <laughs> But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible actually describes anger much more as if it's like a fire. You know, fire is very interesting. A fire will continue to burn and continue to pass on and consuming all of the things around it until it's acted on by another force from the outside. That's what our anger is like. And it will also help you unpack why Jesus is so adamant about us rooting it out. 
Because here's the deal. All humanity in Jesus' mind is created in God's image. So that if I don't find a way through that anger, all it's going to do is it cause me to continue to long for the destruction of the object of my anger. Isn't that what I'm longing for? What I want, what I find myself daydreaming about, is their hurt. For them to be eliminated, uh, canceled, right? Publicly shamed, however it is, whatever society comes up with to sort of purge people out. And Jesus understands that that kind of anger is destructive to the good life. Because all we do is pass it on along to the next generation. We pass it on along to the next cubicle next to me in my office. We pass it on along to the next person on the highways or in the streets. Unresolved, unrighteous anger. It begins, if it's unmeasured, it begins to unpack something for me that I need to pay attention to. Hey, look, before we get to the last point here, it may be that just even a simple discussion like this is revealing in some of you that you have an anger problem. And I found that, it's, that anger problems are typically deeper than we are willing to admit that are anger problems. It's funny, we have, a way of, we have a weird way of excusing our anger on the other side of it because we just don't want to look at it. We're embarrassed of it. But can I, can I offer just a little bit of, of, of advice? Like, if you have toyed with or come close to, or God forbid, actually struck your spouse in anger, it's time to get some help. If, if you've ever daydreamed about something bad happening to your spouse or your child, it's time to get some help. What Jesus, I think, is calling us to is to begin to go and find a counselor, find a pastor. Let's go to lunch. Let's talk. <laughs> find someone that you can trust to begin to get down into the nitty-gritties of my own motivational center and find out what's really being blocked there. Because anger is destructive to the good life. It's destructive to unity. It's destructive to our ability to function as human beings. And I've never lived in an angrier year than the last 12 months in our country. That's what's going to undo us. Forget the virus. It's going to be the anger that sort of does that. But the question looms, right? Okay, so how do I do that? Does Jesus give us any instructions to that? Well, he sure does. And that brings me to the third point. And that is the taming of our anger. Is there a way to sort of put a noose around that and slow it down? Look what Jesus says in verse 23. He says, If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer the gift. Man, I think that's really interesting. Because Jesus locates his first example in the mind of someone who is at a worship service. <laughs> So here's the first step to dealing with your anger. You don't deal with your anger until you first prioritize it. What Jesus is saying is, is it would be better for you not to be at church rather than nurture and nurse some kind of grudge against somebody that you hate. Leave your gift. It, the gift of your presence in church. We're so glad for it, I promise you. Leave it. Don't come back until it's made right and then come back and worship. Why? Because what we're doing here is about those relationships, especially among the body of Christ. That's the point. Jesus wants us to come and make this a priority first. The fact that he roots it in a worship, in a worship experience also shows this correlation between what we worship and our anger. Like I was just saying, it's, un, it's, 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 missed, it's missed idolatry. 
What we need to do is to find good friends with whom we can sit and do a, um, to do a temper tantrum post-mortem, right? To, 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 to sort of uh, un- unpack, to diagnose that. What was really going on? What was the goal that was being blocked for me? Why did I flare up in that regard? Hey, by the way, small little power tip. As you start to do that, go ahead and count on the fact that every time you look inside, it's going to be a mixture. There'll be some things that were appropriate anger and there's some things that were unrighteous. But until I begin to talk about that and get that out, where's it going to go? Which I think Jesus goes on to give another point of, of anger, and that is this. You need to settle anger as quickly as you can. Um, Hebrews 12, 15 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God so that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. <laughs> yeah, trouble, no joke. The writer here is saying, I think, exactly what Jesus says in verse 23. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Why? Because anger is almost always going to make it worse. Almost always. Man, we love to avoid it, though, don't we? <laughs> I just don't like to talk about it because it's very embarrassing to me to refer to that. But here's the thing. You cannot say to yourself when it comes to deep-rooted anger that time is going to heal all wounds because it's not. It's actually going to cause things to fester. And when all of a sudden anger festers in a heart, here's what it does. It begins to harden you. And you become the kind of heart that hardens and becomes impenetrable to any sort of motions towards you. Like I'm talking to especially a lot of us who are still nurturing profound amounts of anger towards parents that we've not known how to forgive. Hey, it's still affecting you. I promise you. Most of the people around you see it, even though you can't. Hey, one small little power tip on the side as well. Paul does say in Ephesians 4, 26, a very similar thing to what Jesus has just said when he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Can I save myself a little bit of marriage counseling here for a second? That does not mean to be taken literally that you need to settle all conflicts with your spouse before either of you go to bed. Um, Oftentimes, it's wonderful to get a good night's sleep because in the morning you feel better about apologizing for whatever it is you did last night. I promise you. So we're talking about not letting it linger, letting it fester. And so what I begin to do finally and, and, and fourthly is I begin to look at my anger and search for the end of it. I don't think that we really get at our anger until we think to ourselves, what would happen, what would life be like if I let this anger go to its logical conclusion? Because that's going to teach us some things, is it not? You know, people thought that they were crazy, but there were a group of marketers who were hired by some social scientists in Israel, of all places, many years ago, uh, to put together a marketing campaign, an ad campaign, for one of the most right-wing conservative neighborhoods in the city of Tel Aviv. What was happening was is the government was putting together some accords to help create peace between Israelis and Palestinians over the much-argued West Bank there in Palestine. Well, when the ads started to come out, what was interesting about them was is they weren't broadcasts that were talking about how important it was to stop the violence. Please stop the violence we have to stop. Actually, it was a little bit of reverse psychology. They were encouraging the hatred. (laughs) There was one ad that showed this very iconic photo of an Israeli uh, war hero that said above it, without war, we wouldn't have the heroes. For the heroes, we probably need the conflict. There also was an ad that was scored. That that whole ad was scored by uh, uh, Wagner's uh, The Flight of the Valkyries. Trying to glorify it, right? 
There was another one that featured a soldier uh, with a kitten in his hand, petting a kitten. And another soldier that was walking an old person across the street while, while uh, Louis Armstrong's uh, What a Wonderful World was playing in the background. And, it, and the caption would read this, Without war, we can never be moral. For morality, we need war. Okay, you ready for this? This was crazy. It worked. A couple of weeks later, they did the same survey, and 75% of the people in that neighborhood had changed their minds and were going to vote to support the peace accords. Why? Because in that moment, they got to see the logical extension of their anger. They saw where it was going to go. They saw its end. They saw its futility. Hey, look, here's the thing that's important for us to realize as we depart. Anger and pain have got to go somewhere. And if I decide that I'm going to put them inside of my own heart, undealt with, it will come out somewhere. It will escape into some relationship, into some, even, even your relationship with yourself, it'll drive you crazy. Anger only ends when someone steps up and is willing to self-sacrifice and absorb the hatred into themselves and neutralize it from an outside source. Come on, y'all. The, 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 the political rhetoric that we've endured in the last year has been unbelievable, where one party rises to power just so they can abuse the other, and we're going to do it all again in about four, three and a half years. This is my thing. Is this all it is? Pain has got to go somewhere. But here's what the Proverbs writer says in Proverbs 25, 21. He says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. Now, when I was a kid and I read that, I used to think, yes, burning coals. That's what I'm going to do to him. No, no, no. Don't get excited. That's not what that passage is saying. It's not another form of vengefulness. What it's saying is kindness to your enemy and service to your enemy will get them thinking about their anger. But that's the only thing that's going to do it. It's only when I exercise kindness towards them and direct it towards them that suddenly they are in a posture of potentially healing and maybe growing through the whole process. Now, look, you're not listening if you're not asking yourself the question, where are Christians going to get that kind of power to absorb and neutralize and be good to those who harm me? Where indeed? Look, folks, if your wrestling with your own anger does not terminate in the foot of the cross, you've missed this. Because don't you see, as Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he knows, he knows his journey that he was going to go to to exercise the greatest kindness to his own mortal enemies who would scream not months after he preaches this for his death and his destruction. And even will he also embody in himself the very wrath of God so that it would all come and meet in a supreme and final act of kindness and grace. Why? So that you and I as we begin to roll around and live in the light of the gospel, suddenly find a new power coming up in us to be able to do our best to stop murdering each other, whether it's in our hearts, whether it's with our words. God forbid it's with our actions. Jesus is trying to introduce us into the good life. But until I look at this anger and I see it at the foot of the cross, there's no healing. But that is an invitation. Let's pray. 
And Lord Jesus, would you lead us into that? Because, Father, right now we're remembering the people that we're angry at, and we've just gotten angry thinking about them. And we need your help. We need clearer sight. It will not be guilt that changes us into the kind of people who know how to serve and love those who harm us. But, Father, it will only be the cross. And so would you, in this last song, as we, as we sing together, guide us there by your grace so that we might rejoice and take delight in what you have for us. Would you do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name.